Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. If I were to ask most of you in this room, now there may be some of us that this might not be an issue for, but if I were to ask most of us in this room to come up with $100,000 by the end of the week, cash, some of us, maybe that's not a problem, but for many of us in this room, that might be a problem. How many of you guys, just, you can just acknowledge in your heart, you're like thinking, okay, hundred grand cash in my hand by the end of this week, how would I pull that off? And for a lot of us, that, that kind of seems, you can just kind of nod your head if that's like you, they're like, yeah, I don't know if that would happen. How would that be possible? Now, let me give you a little bit different scenario though. What if, what if one of your children were sick and uh, of course, we believe in healing around here, but just for the sake of conversation, if one of your children were, were sick and the only solution that you had was this special medicine that cost $100,000 and you had to come up with it by the end of the week. Now, how many of you guys, you, you might be able to come up with $100,000 right now, right? I mean, you, you would be going and asking for, you know, asking, any, you're asking some rich relatives, like, hey, just anything you've got. You'd be asking any friend, hey, 10 bucks here, 10 bucks, whatever you got to do. You'd be clearing out your savings and you'd be, uh, you know, working an extra job. You might even turn to a life of crime if you had to, to get that money. How many you guys know, you could probably come up with 100 grand by the end of the week if it came down to it. Anybody? I mean, I, I could. I believe I really could. Okay. Now, what changed? I, I just gave you a new motivation. See, the first part is like, yeah, I don't know if I could come up. But all of a sudden, if we insert a new motivation, if we have a new purpose, all of a sudden there are new possibilities. And I just want to declare this morning that I believe that as we see a new purpose, that God is giving us new possibilities. I mean that for our church, but I also mean that, and I, I, I think this has a little bit of a prophetic edge on it, that as, as we begin to see new purpose, we will also see new possibilities, that God is opening the door. I want to declare that today, that as we discern the purpose of God and what he's building in our church and what he's building and doing in our lives, as we discern that, we will see new possibilities because some of us, we have set limitations. We have set parameters. We have set things that we think are, these, these are the borders to my influence. These are the borders to my possibilities. And it's because we are not looking at the right purpose for what God has given us. And I believe that as we look for the right purpose, that we will be able to discern and see new possibilities for what God is building in our lives and in this generation, opening doors to new possibilities we never, ever thought of before. If you agree with that, say amen this morning. God is building something. Do you realize that God is a builder? God is a builder. I, I don't know why I just thought of this. Uh, for some reason, when my kids were younger, there was this stupid show on uh, called Bob the Builder. I just thought of that right now. How many of you guys, your parents, you know what I'm talking about? Bob the Builder. Can he fix it? Yeah, he can. He can. And God is a builder. I don't know why I just thought of that. God is a builder. And he can fix it. He can. So let's look at this in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, we're going to go to 19, verse 19. We're going to start off there. It's the end of the chapter, and then we'll hit back as we get into it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Can you see all or hear all of the building talk here? Okay, we were built, we've got a foundation, we've got a cornerstone, uh, we, we've it says, in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, men can build magnificent things. They can, you know, we look throughout history, we see the pyramids, we see skyscrapers, we see uh, all these magnificent structures, uh, all sorts of magnificent, th- magnificent things like the clapper and the snuggie and all sorts of special inventions that we are so thankful for. Um, but God is building something much better than anything men could build. God is building something much bigger than anything men can build. Uh, the question is, what is God building? What is God building? And here's the the interesting thing. What God is building is not a building. What God is building is not a building. You know, uh, when we think about a temple, in fact, the first 300 years or so of the early church, the early church did not have buildings that they called their own. They would actually borrow them or meet in houses or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with the building. We just talked about a stand in the gap offering because you need Uh, places to gather. And in the early church, they would do that in different ways, but they didn't have a place that they called their own because they were the church. Now, let me just make a little footnote here. A lot of people think, well, okay, what's the big deal about church and gathering together? Because I'm the church. Wherever I go, I'm the church. You're not the church. You are not the church wherever you go. You're only the church gathered. You know, church means gathering, right? Okay, so a lot of people get this twisted. Well, I'm going to be an individual. I'm, an in- I'm the church. No, you're not. You are the church connected when you are connected together. What it's talking about here. When you are joined and built together, that's how you are the church. Just because you said a prayer does not make you the church. What makes you the church is that you are built together with the other people of God. Is somebody getting this this morning? Okay. You might need to rearrange your thinking on that just a little bit. And so they gathered together and they were knit together, not just by a gathering, but by community. And that's what a church is. It's knit together by community. So church is not the house of worship, but it does happen when we gather in a house of worship, doesn't it? Because we are the church gathered, the ecclesia. Okay. So... Verse 11, let's go all the way back to verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What God is building here is in fact, it says in there, a new man. What God is building is actually a new way to be human. This is actually 
goes back to the way it used to be before sin, but it's actually for us, it's a new way to be human. He's taking Gentiles, which are non-Jews, and the Jews, which were God's people, and that mark of circumcision and, and following the laws was the mark of God's people, and he's uniting them together, and the Bible says that he actually made something new out of the two. So we don't have two parts anymore, and this is where a lot of people get screwed up. They think, well, you know, the the Jews over here and the, the Gentiles over here. No, it says right here, he made something brand new out of the two. There's a new man. There's, there's not the old two ways. It's a brand new thing, a brand new way. In Christ, there's a new category, not Jew, not Gentile, not old covenant, not outsider. It is a brand new thing. It is his body that he made from the two. And if we understand the new purpose of what God has made in this new man, I believe we can begin to see new possibilities for what God wants to do in his people. And until we discern what God is doing, the new purpose, we won't understand and see new possibilities. So in Christ, there are new possibilities because he's broken down a dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between us and other people that there are new possibilities for how we interact with one another. There are new possibilities for how we see one another. There are new possibilities for how we love one another. There are new possibilities for how we heal one another. There are new possibilities for how we empower one another. There's new possibilities when we discover the new purpose. The problem is many of us are still seeing and living out of the old purpose, thinking that there's still a dividing wall of hostility. And we're acting in an old covenant way instead of in a new man way. And because of that, we don't love each other well. We don't empower one another. We don't encourage, we don't live by the Spirit in the way that we ought to. And the gathering of believers is not being built up because we have not discerned the correct purpose and we've not seen who God is making us to be. You realize that Jesus is a bodybuilder, right? I mean, Jesus is building his body. I just talked about running and getting in shape. We, we did earlier this week. This was a mistake right before power play. But again, I was trying to offset all the pizza. But I, we did this P90X, like a 45-minute video workout, which was all cardio stuff, which I hadn't done one forever. We got done, and it's like we're having to, like, crawl upstairs. I mean, it's just like I can't move, you know? I walked outside to get into the, to the van, and my leg went out. I was like, oh, my gosh, Lord help, you know, and, and I, I made it. That's, that's the point. I made it, and, and that was good enough, you know, but Jesus is building his body. That's what he's doing. He's building it up, and, and that's what God does. Now, the thing about that, uh, about Jesus building his body, is that even though we are his body, and even though Jesus is building up his body, and even though we are the church, and the church just isn't a building, right? How many of you guys would disagree with that? The church is not a building, we sure have a hard time acting like the church outside of it. It's like we come together and we know how to act. But then when we go and we leave, we're not supposed to stop being the church in that sense because we're still connected through community. Okay, We, we are to be gathered. We can't be individualistic, but what we do is we gather together in community as the church, and then we walk away as individuals and still try to call ourselves the church. We are only the church when we are connected through community. We are only the church when we are gathered together under Christ in connection some way, somehow. That's how we are gathered in the church. And so uh, we want peace with God. We want peace with other people. And it seems like we still have dividing walls. How many of you guys would just be honest enough in your heart to, to just admit that you still feel like What's the difference between me and a non-believer when it comes to relationships or it comes even to my relationship with God? 
seems like there's the same problems, the same hostility. It seems like we love each other the same way or lack thereof. Why is that? Why is that? I believe it's for a few reasons. And one thing I'm going to suggest is this. We have to stop putting walls where Jesus made a door. Jesus tore down the dividing wall. And we seem really good at building it and filling it in with bricks. Jesus tore down access of hostility between us and one another and between us and him. And yet we go back and we act just like there was never a door that was made. And we end up putting walls where Jesus made a door. So the Jew and Gentile conversation that he's having here is not so much relevant for us today in the same way it was for them. The, the Gentiles or the non-Jews, they really had no expectation of participating in the Messiah. They had no expectation of being in the kingdom of God. They had no expectation of participating in the promises of God. So how did all this start, this Jew-Gentile thing he's talking about here? Well, it all goes back to Abraham, to a family feud with Abraham. Abraham had two wives. That's the first problem right there, okay? Okay, I, I don't know about you, but one's enough for me, okay? It keeps... Plenty of time. I got my work cut out for me right there. Okay? But it starts with this family feud. Two wives led to two sons. One of them was Isaac. One of them was Ishmael. The, the, the Muslims will say that they ha- are the true heirs. And the Jews would say that they are the true heirs. And so what Abraham essentially did is through circumcision, by making a mark on the body, he declared by that mark who actually is inheriting the promises. And that's what happened. So for centuries and centuries, that mark of circumcision that he's talking about was simply marking that this line of of people are the ones who get to be in the kingdom, who are the ones who receive the promises, who are the people of faith. Later on, we'll see that it doesn't matter what the mark is on the outside. What really matters is a circumcision of the heart, right? So we can say in our day, external marks don't mean much if the heart isn't really happening, right? It doesn't matter what denomination you have or what denomination you come from or what theology, whatever. It doesn't matter if there's nothing real on the heart. That's where it's all at, is at the heart. There's got to be something genuine on the inside. And so that, that God's family, we could say, used to be a gated community. How many of you guys have ever seen a gated community? I don't live in a gated community, uh, but some people might. A gated community where you, had to, you couldn't get in if you weren't living there, if you didn't have access. And the family of God at one point could be seen as a gated community. If you didn't have access, you just did not get in. And the Jews were the only ones that got in. And uh, so, you know, I've been to Mexico several times and I've seen the walls and seen the gates. And of course, in our society that... Mexico wall is a big conversation piece right now. What's the point of the wall? Well, it's to separate, isn't it? It's to keep some people out and some people in. And there's a lot of debate about that in our culture. That's kind of what it looked like spiritually. It was to keep some people out and keep some people in. And it was a dividing wall uh, in the culture of things back in the early days. And so they had 613 rules, 613 commandments they had to keep. And if you weren't keeping them, then you had to go and you had to bring a sacrifice and you had to take a a sacrifice and you'd put your hand over that and you would confess your sins over that and it would be slaughtered in your place. That was kind of how it worked. And, And we even had a dividing wall in the Holy of Holies in the temple of God that kept only the priests could get in, only certain days of the year. So everything was divided. Until Jesus comes... And dies on the cross, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
And he gave us that word that we saw there, that beautiful word called access. And where there was a dividing wall between people, a dividing wall between God and people, all of a sudden there was now a door. And so many of us, what we end up doing is we end up building up walls in our relationship where Jesus has clearly made doors. And we feel justified in doing so. We feel like, well, they hurt me or they said this or that. I don't agree with them on this. And we end up acting just like Gentiles or people before access. Just like those who would not know God, we seem to not have any capacity or possibility to love in the way that God loves. And because of that, we feel and experience hostility. And that is not God's plan for our life. He wants us, he's made a doorway, not just to him, but can you see in this scripture that he made a doorway between us? So that God's people ought to be known by what? Their love one for another. And if we are not known by our love one for another, what have we done? We've built up a wall where Jesus created a door. And he wants us to walk through that door. Do you realize Jesus said he was the door? If you want peace, is there anybody here that wants peace in your life? Anybody wants peace? Let me tell you where, how to get that. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the access point to peace. If you want peace in your marriage, you go through the door of Jesus. If you want peace with God, you go through the door of Jesus. If you want peace in any relationship, you go through the door of Jesus. Jesus is the access point. If you want peace in your emotions, you go through the door of Jesus Christ. He made a door. Let's stop building walls. Jesus never built walls. He became a door. And here's what we do as believers. If you've been a believer long enough, you seem to, it's easy for us to go back to a gated community mentality with God. Well, here we are, and we got to make sure we make gates so that no sinners come in. Is that what Jesus did? <laughs> no. That's why personally, and you can do with this what you want. I don't identify myself as Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. You know what I identify myself as? A follower of Jesus. Because the crowds follow Jesus. And in our culture, we have to be careful what, what kind of walls we're putting up. I just want people to know I follow Jesus. Because if I put up all these other labels and all these other walls that Jesus never intended for me to put up, then what have I done? I've alienated people and I've built a wall where Jesus made an open door. You know, Jesus, he dined with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And, and for us in our day, that might be whoever the other side of the political aisle is. Jesus would dine with them, would you? That was good. That was good, wasn't it? Okay. So it's possible to build up where God has torn down, but it's also possible to tear down what God is trying to build in our life. A scripture in Proverbs 14, 1, it says, the wisest of women builds her house, but with folly, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Sometimes God is trying to build something in our life. And have you ever done this before and realized, oh, I'm tearing this all down myself. <laughs> God's doing something great in my life and I'm tearing it down. See, sometimes it's possible to tear down what God is building. Are we cooperating with what God is building or are we working against? Let me tell you one of the ways that we work against what God wants to build in our life. You ready for this? It's two words. Yeah, but. I know I should forgive. Yeah, but. I know I should love. Yeah, but. I know God loves me. Yeah, 
but, I know I ought to be more generous, yeah, but, two words tear down the work of God in our life. Yeah, but. We know the promises, we know the truth, we know the right way, yeah, but. I know God could do, yeah, but. I feel like there are still walls in my life, yeah, but I feel like there are still walls between me and God, yeah, but I, I, I feel stuck in the same sin. I still f- feel stuck in the same offense. I still feel stuck in the same pattern, the same bad relationship. Yeah, I don't feel found. I feel lost. Yeah, but two words tear down what God is building in our life. What do we do when our feelings contradict what we know we should believe? What do we do? I don't feel like God would accept me. I don't feel like I'm right with God. I don't feel set free. I don't feel whatever. What do we do? To answer that, I believe we have to first understand what God knows. We have to understand what God knows. Because sometimes I think we're afraid for God to find out who we really are. As crazy as that might be. And so because of that, we think God doesn't really know how bad I am. God doesn't really know how bad the situation is. And we're kind of waiting for God to somehow figure that out so that he can also come on our side and justify the way we feel instead of us changing the feelings to the way we should believe. Amen? I got one. Okay. Um, Because we think God doesn't know sometimes. So years ago when I was dating my now wife, I uh, would drive several hours a day. I'd drive, I lived in Cameron, Missouri, would drive to Kansas City and work construction all day long, then would drive to St. Joseph where she lived, spend uh, right up to my curfew time, just hanging out with her, doing whatever, and then I would drive back to Cameron in this triangle of travel, and I would get home, like, I mean, I would do this over and over and over again and be exhausted, you know, but I'd be driving from that St. Joe Lake to Cameron trying to make my curfew and just exhausted, and there'd be times I'd start to nod off as I'm driving. Have you guys ever done that? You nod off and you're like, I've got my windows rolled down. I've got the radio blared on. I'm like pouring stuff on my face, trying to keep awake. But one particular night, I, I fell asleep evidently on the highway, driving 70 miles an hour or whatever. I wake up to realize I've just rear-ended someone on the highway at like 70 miles an hour in the middle of the night. And I'm like, whoa, and so I'm like trying, I, I'm trying to get control and realize, I mean, it wasn't that, it was just a little bump. So I don't know how I kept on a straight line. It's the grace of God. So uh, I, I bumped them. And so I'm waiting for them to pull over to see if there's any damage or stuff. And I'm just a teenager. I'm not thinking this through. So I'm following them. And I've got like from Stewartsville to Cameron, which is another like 15 miles or something. And so I'm following, I'm waiting for them to pull over. They don't pull over. I get close to Cameron, and all of a sudden, these police cars come out of nowhere. I mean, they are just, like, surrounding me. I pull over. I'm freaking out. I'm like, so they come up. They've got their guns and everything. They're coming up. They, they think, so evidently what happened to these people think that a madman is out to get them in the middle of the night and is ramming them off the road like they've been watching too many spy movies or something like that. And I'm like, no, I'm just a kid. I just fell asleep. And finally, and, and so this police officer talks to me and realizes that's the truth, and and he says, well, I, I may or may not be stopping by your house if they choose to press charges later on. And uh, so I was still a kid living at home, and I thought, well, I've got two options. One is tell my parents and, and uh, take whatever comes from that. Two is roll the dice. Just see if they ever come to the door. 
I know I'd be in much worse trouble if they came, if the police officer comes to the door and I didn't say anything. And so I opted for number two. Just don't say anything at all. Sure enough, they did not show up, praise the Lord, for me. And I, I didn't tell my parents until the statute of limitations had lifted and I was well into my adult years before I ever told them what had happened. But I was, I was basically just going off this assumption that maybe they'll find out, maybe they won't find out. I think sometimes we go with that with God. We're like, does God really understand? Does God really know? Does God, is God going to find out how bad I really am or how bad I really will be? We have to understand this, that God knows everything, right? God knows everything. And yet we have these stories in the Bible about the, this picture of God, of of this woman who lost a coin and she turns up her house and she searches all over for it until she finds it and then she rejoices. And that's a picture of God, like searching after a lost coin. And we have, you know, the, the lost son, you know, or the lost sheep and, and all these things are like lost, lost. Like how can God seek after something that's lost if he knows exactly where everything is? God's omniscient. That, that means that God is all-knowing. One commentary says this way. It says, God fully knows himself and all things, and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. So God knows everything, all things that exist and all things that happened and will happen. There is no creature that is hidden from God's sight. God knows the future. The Bible says that God knows the end from the beginning. The, God knows all the tiny details of our life. He, know, he did, knows the words. He knows the, the things that we need even before we ask them. The Bible says that he even knows the number of hairs on our head, which is easier for him in some people than in others. Uh, that's me. Uh, he knows all these little details. He knows the words that you will say even before you speak them. He knows the days of our life even before we were born. The Bible says that even in the womb, he saw our unformed substance and he knew us. And in his book, our days were written in his book. Not only does God know what happens, God knows all things that are possible. David asks God at one point in scripture, he asks him what would have happened if different scenarios played out. Jesus said that Tyre and Sidon would have repented had they seen Jesus' miracles, but they did not. So he knows, God, he knows all of these things. He, God knows himself fully and everything that he is able to do. God knows thousands and thousands of possibilities that have never happened. God knows that there are thousands and thousands of possibilities of things he could have created, creatures he could have created, and he did not create, but he still knows what they would have been like. Why? Because God knows himself fully in everything that he's able to do. He knows all of this completely. Why? Because he is all knowing. He knows the number of grains of the sand on the sea. He knows the number of stars in the sky. He wouldn't have to count quickly or to come to a conclusion and to count it all up like a computer because he knows all of those things instantaneously all at once. All information is fully present to him. He doesn't have to think about something or come to conclusions before an answer because he knows all things. In one eternal act, he knew everything from start to finish. He, his knowledge never increases or grows. If it would, he would not be all-knowing. God never has to sit there and think about something. He never has to come to a conclusion. He never has to wonder because he's all-knowing. From eternity, he's known all things that will happen, have happened, and could have ever happened. Why? Because God is all-knowing. Have I convinced you yet? He knows it all. How can God seek after something if he knows exactly where everything and everyone is? Now, here's the amazing thing. 
bring it personally just for a second. God knows where you are. God knows everything about what you are. God knows everything about what you will do because he knows everything. God knows he chooses to pursue you even though he knows exactly where you are right now. He chooses to pursue you even though he knows who you are right now. Because you're not, we weren't lost in a locational sense, we were lost in a spiritual sense, but even now that those of us who have been found, God still knows everything. And God knows what I will do negatively in the future. He knows that I will uh, go back on different vows that I make to him. He knows that I will choose sin at times instead of him. He knows that I will mess up certain things in my life. He knows all of this, and yet right now as I stand before you, I feel the perfect love of God. Isn't that amazing that right now I can just feel God's perfect love towards me and yet God knows in the future that I will screw things up and yet right now he perfectly loves me and then he will perfectly love me. Yeah, but I did this last week. Well, he's factored in all the things you could come up with. He's factored in all the things you bring up in your mind and he still comes after you in spite of that. He's factored in all the, the yeah buts. His love is deeper and wider than you ever think it could be. He's factored in all of those things. Yeah, but there's this area of my life that I keep struggling with. There's this area of relationships I keep struggling over and over and I keep trying to beat this habit. I keep trying to beat this offense. I keep trying to beat this sin. And if we're not careful, we begin to think that Christianity is all about the things that we need to turn our back on and say no to. And that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not about what you turn your back on, it's who you turn your face to. Because when you turn your back on sin, or rather, when you turn your face towards God, you've automatically turned your back on sin. And so many of us struggle, and we tear down what God is building in our life because of the yeah buts. Because, yeah but, what if God finds out this about me? Yeah but, what if God doesn't know? He already knows all of it. He already knows who you are and who you will be, and he's already decided to love you. Your yeah, but that you come up with is invalid. There's no, there's no justification for it. He already knows what will happen. He already knows who you are. He already knows who you've been. And he already said, here I am. Arms open wide. Is that good news for anybody this morning? Man, that's good news right there. So how you see yourself before God, how do you? If you think God is pursuing you to punish you, you'll run away. If you think God is running after you to pursue you because he's a loving father, you'll turn to him and you'll run towards him. Let's not tear down the work of God in our life by our yeah buts. We've got to turn our yeah buts into but God. Remember I said that last week? That but God, buts are important. And this, this is here. We saw that last week. It said, you know, all this stuff, dead and trespassing sin, but God being rich in his mercy. Here we see the same thing. It, it lists all these things, but it says, but now in Christ. This is some of the best words you will ever hear, but God. We have to change our confession from yeah, but to get some faith-filled words in our heart to say, anytime you hear a yeah, but in your mind, say, but God. In fact, can we just say that right now? Just say, but God. Now let's say it like we mean it. But God. Anytime you hear a yeah, but in your mind, you just come back to Satan. You say, but God. But God who's rich in mercy. But God, he even knew I was going to do that anyway. But God, and God changes everything around. I love that song. We're going to sing it here in a little bit. It's, it's titled The Reckless Love of God. 
That there's, there's no wall he won't kick down. There's no lie he won't tear down. That he's coming after me. There, there's no wall. There's nothing. God is coming. He's got a reckless love towards us. Oh, the overwhelming, reckless love of God chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But he's coming after me. I want you to know that's what God is coming after. He's coming after you. Yeah, but no, but God. But God. He's coming after you. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. If we look at Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Romans 5, 7 and 8, for, scarcely will, uh, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is anybody getting happy a little bit this morning? Because you ought to be. Ephesians, we talked about this last week. It says, uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We the desires in the body of our mind and the nature of children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You've got to turn your yeah, but into a but God. And if I haven't convinced you there, you might be saying, okay, I get all of that, Sean. I get all of that. But we still have to deal with reality. The reality is our relationships aren't where they should be. The reality is that the church isn't living like the wall is knocked down. The church is still screwed up. The church is still messed up. How could it be this way? I mean, what's wrong with the church? How do we deal with when there's things that are wrong with the church? Got a quick video to set up this last point. I know what the scripture says. I know it's wrong when we gather together and we don't love each other. We can't just have thousands of people in a room and we're not showing that intense love where people walk in and go, wow, there's something different about your love for one another. And it's like, no, that's just, that's just not right when we're not living like a body or like a family. And, and, and this whole prayer, prayer, and receive Jesus into your heart, I'm just, I'm searching this book and going, man, I'm not, I'm not seeing this. I, I mean, it, 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 we're either followers of Jesus Jesus or we're not. And, and, and it didn't make sense to me. You know, like, like how can you say, how, how can we have rooms filled with people who claim to have the Holy Spirit of God Almighty inside their bodies? I mean, God Almighty inside of you and your life looks just like everyone else? No wonder they're shutting down the churches. You know, you come in and you're like, well, what's different from this? These people, I don't see an intense love. I don't see a super supernatural Holy Spirit movement in here. You know, I just see a lot of the same old stuff. But, but, but as everyone questions and go, well, yeah, but this, but that, but that, I'm going, oh, maybe you're right. But all, all the while, there was always just this lack of peace. Like, no, it's got to be this way. It's got to be this way. See, and I know that some of us feel like, yeah, but there's still, I mean, there's just stuff wrong. There's just, how, how is it how is it any different? How is it ever going to change? How are we ever going to get past this? And a lot of people end up writing off the church. I don't mean just a church. I mean the church in general. Uh, George Barna, he's a researcher and self-proclaimed uh, theologian, I suppose. Uh, he says this, and I disagree with him. But he says, if the local church is the hope of the world, then the world has no hope. 
And some of you guys, there was something in your heart that agreed with that when I said that. Because it looks like it's not working out so well. It's like we can't get it together. How are we going to turn this ship around? There's lots of books out there bashing the church and saying how we need it. This isn't, this isn't important. This, this isn't the way it should be, and we should do this and that. Listen, the greatest threat to the church is never from the outside. Anytime persecution comes to the church throughout all of history, they may scatter they may shrink in a sense, but it really they're just pruning, and they ultimately end up stronger. I'm not worried about persecution. I don't want to, you know, some of you guys think we're being persecuted in the United States. Come on, get real. It's ridiculous. No, we're not. We're not. Go to a different country where Christianity is illegal. Then, then let's have that conversation. This is, this is not persecution, okay? If real persecution were to come, and I'm not wanting it to come necessarily, but if it were, the church would grow stronger. I promise you that because it always has under persecution. The real, the greatest threat to the church is never from the outside. It's always from the inside. The greatest threat from the church is always from the inside. It's always with maybe loose doctrine or wrong identity, wrong focus, infighting. That's where the threat to the church is. That's where it's at. And many of you here, even in this room, may have a broken heart because of something that's happened when you participated in the church, and that's just a tragic thing. So how do we move beyond that? I, I believe that we can be a part of a church that Jesus would be proud of. I really have that conviction. I believe we can be a part of church. I'm not talking about a perfect church. I'm talking about a hungry church. There's a difference. We're never going to be a perfect church. You want to point out all the things that are wrong with the church? Listen, i got a front row seat, and I can point it out better than you can. Okay, I promise you that. That's not the point. The point is, what do we do about it? And so we have a lot of people that end up, I, I, a friend of mine years and years ago, uh, he came and he, he wanted to point out all the things that were wrong with our church and began to criticize this and criticize that and criticize this and criticize that. And I'm like, dude, I know all of those things and more. It's easy to criticize. It's a lot harder to be the solution to what you're criticizing. In your marriage, same thing applies. In your friendships, same thing applies. In your family, whatever. It's easy to criticize. There's no spiritual gift of pointing out problems, by the way. There's just not. Some of you think you have a spiritual gift. There's not one. You're not going to find it listed in there. Okay, and there's all these problems. So how can we cooperate with what God is building? How can we turn that ship around? And I'm going to say something that you may not want to hear on what the solution to that is. How can we cooperate with what God is building? We have to be what we want to see. See, and some people's solution is, well, I don't like what's going on in the church, so I'm just going to leave the church. Oh, that really helped, didn't it? Now you've, you've left, you've either decided you weren't going to be the solution and live in the midst of the imperfection, and you had to go find another perfect church. Good, good luck. You won't find it. Good luck. And we, we see all the things that are wrong with the church, and listen, I, I can point them out just like you can, okay? We have to be what we want to see. Everybody wants to change the church. Everybody wants to change their marriage. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change themselves. And so what we do is we, we just say, well, this isn't right for me. It's not meeting my needs, so I'm going to go and, and do this somewhere else or not go to be a part of a gathering at all. And since I am in the church as an individual, which is a theological heresy, that's not true. Um, 
We have to be what we want to see. If you say, well, I want to see the church that looks like this. I wish I could see that. Then you need to be that. I want to see a church that has a lot more love for one another. Well, then be that right there. You have just as much opportunity as anyone else sitting next to you to be what's right about this church. You have just as much opportunity to be the solution to what you see as the problem as anyone else. And so what you do is you say, well, I'm just going to go love well somewhere else. Well, then you are not solving the problem here. We need people who are going to solve, who be the solution to what they see. If you say, well, I, I would like to see us be like this, well, then start being that. Well, I want my marriage to be this way. Well, then start, be that. That's, you know, be what's right. The only way for a marriage to change, a family to change, a church to change, is for someone in that to change and to stick around and be the change. That's good news right there. That's hope-filled right there, actually. You say, man, all of a sudden, well, maybe we can be what this is all about. Maybe we can. We're going to have pockets of it if we have people who are faithful. See, the, the issue is, the, the question is this. Will you obey what you know is right? That's the question. Will you obey? Will I obey when it's hard? Will I obey when I know what the right thing to do is, but it's a hard thing? See, here's the thing. I believe that we obey a lot. I believe we have our own selective lists of things and areas that we obey God in. We like those areas. Well, I'll, for every person it's different. Well, I do this and I do this for God and I'm very obedient to God. And we end up measuring obedience by quantity instead of difficulty. Or we measure obedience by what is comfortable for us or called to instead of difficulty in the areas that maybe we don't naturally bend towards. There's so much wrong with this church. There's so much wrong with this relationship. There's so much wrong with this marriage. There's so much wrong with this family. Would you be what's right about this church? Would you be what's right about your marriage? Would you be what's right about your family? Would you be what's right in the world, at your workplace? Can you see what God is building? And if you can see it, start to be it. If you can see it, because new purpose, when you understand the purpose, the reason you're here in this church is not just to be fed, but it's also to be what's right in a church that has some things that are wrong. The reason that you're in your marriage is not just so that you can get, get, get out of the marriage. It's so that you can be what's right and you can show love to your spouse, right? We get that in a marriage. Well, maybe we don't, but we should. Many of you are here because God has called you to be here to be what's right. And if more people who catch the vision of that, then all of a sudden we start to be the solution. That's good news right there. Walt Disney, the story goes like this. Walt Disney, Disney before he died, or he died before Walt Disney World Florida opened. And so five years after his death, they, someone came and commented to creative director Mike Vance. They said, it's too bad Walt Disney didn't live to see this. And Vance simply replied, he did see it. That's why it's here. Because he saw it before it happened. And what we have to do 
as believers in our marriage, in our relationships, in our relationship with God, is be able to see it. And once we see it, start to be it. Be what you want to see. We're going to close up and we're going to receive communion. And the significance about this, going to have the worship team come back up. The significance about this is we are going to be participating in what this little portion of Scripture is talking about. How Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins, and he became the access, the door, and he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Some of you, all you feel is hostility towards God. You feel hostility in your relationships. Let's walk through the door of Jesus this this morning. And as we come to the table, we remember that by shedding his blood and by his body being broken, what happened in that moment is that he gave us access to the Father. And so today when we come to the table, we're going to take these elements that represent that victory on the cross, how he took all of our sin, all of our shame. He rose from the dead. He offers us a new door, a new way, a new man, a new way to be human, a new way to interact with one another, a new access to him. And we're going to remember that. And for those of us who've been on the outside of that, we're going to step through that door today. We're going to step through that door by faith. So can we pray? And then we're going to sing this song and come and receive communion. Lord, we thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you that you took a sledgehammer to that dividing wall of hostility between us and you, between us and one another. And you sledgehammered a door of access so that we can walk right through. Not not in guilt because you took care of our guilt. Not in shame because you took care of our shame. Not in sin because you paid the price for our sin. But Lord, as saints, as sons and daughters, we walk through that door. And we're so thankful that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and receive help in time of need. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. There's tables in back, tables in front. Let's receive. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.